listeners welcome back to another episode of quote and quote with kk health today i have got dr marcus who is an interesting personality who has written book and has done work in the sick care to wellness space dr marcus is a bachelor of science and medical from university college of medical school in london and he has worked and taken expeditions to everest arctic and the european alps he served as a medical officer in the royal air force and at nasa's kennedy space center after practicing clinical medicine in london dr marcus returned back to india and has been working in this interesting space recently dr marcus wrote a book which is called at the human edge and a very interesting experience of pushing the endurance limit of humans it's an interesting topic in our current times and which is the reason why i have invited dr marcus on our podcast today very interestingly during the early phases of our pandemic dr marcus was also serving as a frontline medical worker and also contacted covid and went through covid as well it is his experience having gone through this phase in his life which i would like to share along with his book that he has written and launched which is on amazon let me just roll back with my own personal experience back in 2013 on 1st january 2013 early morning i was flatlined for over 15 minutes pronounced dead and i got revived and i came back life has been very different for me since then i would say this is my second life or my second avatar i was able to push my to be able to be fully fit and two years back on my 50th birthday i was attempting to run 50 kilometers just to prove that age is just a number and i used katsu which is a da- japanese technique to strengthen your musculoskeletal system to put able to run 50. and during my practice sessions at 200 psi pressure on both on my calves as well as on my arms i was able to push myself to a distance of 75 kilometers so everything is possible if you are able to push to the limit of your human body welcome uh, marcus and i would love to talk about your experience and your journey so far and also talk briefly about your book very interesting book that you have written with even a foreword written by a very famous cricketer jonty rhodes of the yesteryears who was part of the south african cricket team so over to you marcus let's start by talking about your journey of how you have pushed the human edge to the limits hey thanks for having me great to be here and uh, thank you so much for all the support and great words uh, and appreciation for the book uh, as well kapil i'm i'm very fortunate because my journey has allowed me to zigzag and sort of accumulate a wealth of different experiences through the adventures that i've had fundamentally i'm a science geek and i say that very proudly i love the human body uh, learning about the brain the body and and various manifestations of the five trillion cells that exist that makes up who you are and who I am uh, and uh, at a very early stage in my career uh, I was studying a degree in in human physiology at University College London that you mentioned uh, and um, I got an opportunity to learn how to fly I I joined the Royal Air Force uh, and I was there for three and a half four years 
And it was during that time that I was really introduced to this idea of extreme medicine, extreme physiology. So what happens to you when you start to put this body in different extreme environments? And of course, fighter pilots were the subjects that I got to see firsthand and experience some of those extreme G-forces myself. Then um, I, I met a very interesting clinician who start, introduced me to the idea of space medicine. And in fact, my dissertation uh, was studying the effects of microgravity effectively zero gravity on the heart and cardiovascular system. And a few years later, I got the incredible chance to be just off the launch pad at Cape Kennedy, NASA Kennedy Space Center. And I saw the space shuttle Atlantis actually tear away into the blue sky uh, above me. I spent uh, six weeks uh, in the US working uh, at NASA on the human spaceflight program uh, and just was part of that entire mission right from the moment it took off and then obviously looking into the astronaut health while they were on the International Space Station and then returning back to Earth a few weeks later. Seeing this rock, this flying brick, really break the sound barrier twice and then come hurtling into land. Of course, our, our listeners would now know SpaceX and, and Blue Horizon and Virgin Galactic and a lot of these are looking at vertical takeoff and landing but in the old days uh, the the space shuttle would take off vertically but would come into land like a normal aeroplane so then uh, many many other expeditions I went on to study medicine I trained as a doctor practiced I led a large expedition to Mount Everest in 2007 really it was the world's largest at that point in time we had a hundred people we had three tons of medical equipment 17 different experiments were conducted on our bodies uh, I led another expedition expedition to the Arctic Circle in the deep depths of the of the Siberian Siberian Arctic. Uh, and there we were really looking at the effects of a low temperature extreme physical environment on the immune system, measuring cortisol levels in the blood. So I've been very fortunate, you know, long and short has been a journey from sick care to well-being with a bunch of different extreme environments thrown in. And I really tried to capture that journey in the book at the human edge wherein the hero, of course, remains biology, but I put it against the vista of these different extreme environments and I showcase to you what you could potentially do if you chose to climb Mount Everest uh, and what's going on outside with regard to the geography, but also what's going on inside with regard to your, your physiology. Really appreciate what you have achieved and what you have done. My promise to you is to introduce you to our space mission to the moon, man on the moon. And I hold that to you and I'm going to connect you to Amen. our expedition as well, where I'm sure they would definitely benefit from your experience at, at NASA. So let me pick up uh, the threads from your book, Marcus. First of all, Marcus, what led you to write and become an author? What was your inspiration? My to-be-born children is the short answer. Many years ago, actually, this book has been a long time in the making, Couple, I started writing six years ago before my wife even became pregnant for the first time. And um, I just had a thought that how amazing would it be for my children to be inspired and love science in the same way that I am inspired and love science, but do so by the words of their father. Uh, and so that's why I wrote it. And it was just meant to be a collection of stories of my expeditions and some learnings that I had. But as I started to write it and, and, and talk to people about it, you know, people said, well, you know, this is something which, uh, which the world should also enjoy. So I started writing it as a book. And of course, it's gone through many iterations for anyone 
out there listening who've, who've written a book, they would appreciate the long journey it takes. Um, and this particular manuscript had three different avatars. The first one was a much more academic version of it, uh, which was going to just be targeted towards people from the scientific realm. And then as I finally got a publisher and started to work with the editor and started to give the work to people whom I really respected and who I thought might be interested uh, in the subject, that just opened it up. The language began to open up. And I'm really proud of the work that we've achieved now. It's it's very accessible for anyone, irrespective of whether they have any understanding of science. I really go from uh, first principles uh, when I start talking about describing the structure of the heart and what it's there to do. And then we get into the role of red blood cells and, and you know, mitochondria. In fact, there's a whole chapter dedicated to mitochondria. Yeah, we can talk we're about going to talk on. about it as well uh, yeah. in our talk. So it's a journey and it's it's really there for to inspire people. And therefore, when Dr. Tedros, whom people would recognize as the Director General of the World Health Organization, of course, now he's a household name, uh, given the incredible leadership around the work that he and his organization, the World Health Organization, has done for this pandemic, COVID-19. Uh, but when he agreed to write the foreword, uh, I was so touched by that. Uh, I've known him for many years, and and he he said that he would love to to write the forward. And and even within the forward, he he ends it beautifully by talking about the next generation of scientists and how they need to be inspired and motivated. And he said that this is a work that could could uh, could meet that endeavor. So it was it was very touching to see those words from such a great global leader. Just for the audience information, Dr. Marcus has dedicated his book to his two children, Adin and Eva, and his wife, Raina. It's a beautiful dedication. And both the forwards, the three forwards that Dr. Marcus has mentioned in his book deserves to be read in the context of the current environment and the threats and challenges to the humankind that we are going through with the current pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think for each of them, Dr. Tedros talking about global health, the challenges of the pandemic and climate crisis, which is a another area that I do a lot of, do, do a lot of my academic research. So Chris Bonington, for, for me, was very special because he was the patron of the Everest expedition that I led in 2007. So, uh, and even more than that, a few years later, when I was one day visiting Delhi and I was staying at this very small boutique motel in Greater Kailash 2, they upgraded me and they put me in what is now called the the, the Chris Bonington suite. Uh -huh. And I sent him a message and I said, Sir, Sir Bonington, uh, I'm staying in the suite uh, and there's a photograph of you. You know, what's the connection? And he said, Marcus, on my first expedition to Mount Everest, and I, I flew in via India and I came to Delhi, I actually stayed at that same boutique hotel and that was my room. And later on, I, I, I went down and I found the owner and I told him the story. And he took me into parts of the hotel, which were basically like a museum. And they had all this old, incredible memorabilia of people who have summited Everest. So that was a, one of those incredible serendipitous moments in life. Uh, so I was very pleased when Sir Chris also decided to write one of the uh, one of the forwards for the book. And of course, John T. Rhodes. And, and I've grown up watching him on the cricket field. I've, I've met him a couple of times in Bombay as well uh, with the work he did at the Mumbai Indians. And even a couple of weeks ago, he was still throwing himself about uh, in the... Mm. Uh, 
in the Legends tournament. Uh, and at the age uh, when, I, when he and I were exchanging messages uh, a few months ago, uh, and he reminded me that uh, you know, uh, you know, I'm 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 52 or 53, I, I think something in that 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 age grade. So for someone at his level to be doing this is just an incredible inspiration for all of us. Yeah, excellent. I want to shift some gears now, Marcus, and talk about the current pandemic and you know, living through the COVID and the lifestyle in the new normal. Yeah. Let me just share you my experience. Yeah. Last year in March, when the lockdown started, and today, as you see me, I have reduced 12 kilos of weight myself, pushing um, and just simple walking. And my parents just went through their own first round of vaccination and they've gone through, you know, their own apprehensions. Obviously, who's a heart patient, he seems to have slowed down during the COVID and not been very active. So how do we you know, inspire people to be more healthy, push their human edge, as, as your book says, and how do they live in the new normal that's coming uh, now post-vaccination uh, and immunization of our population? What are your words to the people here? You know, a couple of 2020 taught all of us our own individual lessons, but I think the grand realization that we've had as a collective has been the competitive advantage that well-being provides. And one can look at it on three levels. There's the individual level, which uh, you know we've all become much more aware of what immunity is and strength. The word resilience has been used, maybe overused in some instances. But you've got individual well-being. You've got the leaders and the business folks, and I know a lot of CEOs listen to your podcast as well. And, and for them, they've understood how important well-being of their teams are, of their business are. Uh, and for me, 2020 was such a busy year because, you know, I do a lot of work in the corporate arena around Asia Pacific, working with many companies to promote mental well-being, managing stress, in greater engagement, fueling peak performance. And, uh, you know, I must have worked with around 300 companies probably just last year alone. Wow. So it was a very, very busy year for me. And then you've got well-being at the, uh, at the national level. Right, uh, countries now this new you know surrogate space race, the vaccine race, vaccine nationalism. We've seen countries block the import and export of vaccinations, of masks, of PPEs. All of these things are national security issues for us now. And um, and I'm glad it's happening now because you know we needed to honestly have a, a big wake up call. Anything which disrupts the global system and brings it to a standstill for you know so long over such a small thing needs to be looked at and, and explored and rectified very quickly because the uh, the time bomb of the climate crisis is upon us. The uh, sort of doomsday clock ticks closer and closer to the midnight hour. And we only have about eight to 10 years to fix it. Otherwise, all of these things, which are already experiencing extreme environments, pandemics, shortages of natural resources, uh, food uh, process, uh, you know, all of those things are gonna go and unravel themselves very quickly. Uh, in 2016, a couple, I wrote a paper which was actually accepted at the World Economic Forum. I was invited to Davos and, and it was presented there at the at the global uh, annual uh, le uh, leaders convening in, in January of 2016. And it was looking at the relationship between the climate crisis and global health, something which people weren't really looking or focused on too much. But of course, now that's picking up steam. And in the five bullet points of risks that I charted out, number three was an impending global pandemic. So these are things that we've known about for a long, long time. 
and it's and therefore we 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 shouldn't be shocked and more of these are going to happen and they may happen on scales which are even larger than we're facing right now so i don't want to be too much of a pessimist but i want us to appreciate the challenge and therefore the opportunity which sits in front of us for us to create sustainable change right from the individual unit if you look at it from a physiological level from the cellular through the organ so cellular tissues and organs so individuals teams uh, uh, organizations and then the systemic uh, and i think well-being therefore is the big opportunity which sits in front of us and i'm i'm happy to lead the charge and make change where i can at my level as well excellent and i really wish you all the best drive your your thought leadership and proof to the world that individuals and people from india are also capable of of delivering like what we have delivered for our vaccine yeah. to the global stage yeah interestingly during the pandemic we had soldiers also on the chinese indo chinese border mm. who were in very extreme environment giving a push back to the China as well on yeah. temperatures which were kind of what minus 45 degrees celsius yeah and ultimately china had to relent and push back in their own country uh, what do you say about uh, our army system were they prepared for this uh, sort of endurance and pushing the human limit uh, during the pandemic itself so you know without wanting to get into the geopolitics or some of the national sensitivities of it all my my father by the way was uh, an ex indian navy and he served on the vikrant during the war with uh, pakistan uh, and my grandfather and my maternal side was actually in the royal air force during the second world war so you know, you know armed forces and and service is something which uh, which 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 we often talk about and is is a common thread you know any form of existence on the sichuan glacier whether you have any any prior exposure or not is challenging right for a variety of reasons one is the remoteness secondly is the physical environment number 3 is the temperature as you described number 4 the big one which perhaps is often misunderstood is the low oxygen right so if All you right. imagine us at sea level we are literally living and i write about this in chapter 1 of my book uh, for mount everest we are literally living at the bottom of a depth of an ocean that ocean is our atmosphere right the atmosphere is roughly 3 4 5 kilometers deep now just like when you go diving the further down you go the greater the pressure because there's weight above you it's the right. same with us at sea level so that atmospheric pressure that exists at sea level the weight of the column of air above it basically drives a pressure and that pressure as per boyle's law is a concentration of gas so 21% oxygen exists at in our atmosphere the lower you are the higher the pressure so roughly when you breathe in every time you and i are breathing in right now at sea level roughly there is a 100 milli 100 milligrams of uh, of mercury mmhg that's the that's the unit of pressure which is being driven into our bodies at the at the alveolar at the lungs as you ascend up that column of air becomes lesser and lesser and lesser therefore the pressure goes down the concentration remains the same but the pressure goes down and therefore those soldiers who are there up at 8 10 12000 uh, feet they are breathing in lesser and lesser of oxygen and you know i can tell you from experiences the highest i've ever been is at 19000 feet odd uh, and literally there to bend over and tie your shoelace is a challenge right anyone who's been to leh ladakh uh, in india when you land in you you you'd appreciate this and you know how short of breath you immediately feel now imagine having to walk for 15 20 kilometers a day with a 30 kilogram pack on your bag back 
being vigilant to try and spot enemy soldier at a distance have your gun run around do all of those things and fight these are true warriors they're incredible feats of human endurance on both sides right on both sides irrespective of of nationality so that just deserves the respect of us mortals and and human beings and of course a lot of science goes into that right we in india we've got a, in, in, an in, entire department that is set up to study high altitude effects on human physiology and lots of translation occurs for our army uh, soldiers at that altitude which is incredible to study and learn and there's some great documentaries for folks that are interested in in viewing online as well so it's uh, it's it's just it's just incredible and i love meeting folks that have done this uh, and how they serve the country in in such harsh environments you know oxygen or uh, availability of oxygen to the lungs to sustain your body mm. at high altitude and we had covid where we our lungs were compromised similarly to what i had in uh, yeah. 2013 and people were not able to breathe and had to be pushed through with with ventilator support and uh, other antibiotics for us to sustain breathing even at sea level yeah. i'm sure you've gone through your experience as well during covid yeah. uh, when you tested positive as well yeah what's the message for the people suppose we were to have a new mutation and, and in the new normal how do they enhance their endurance limit and lung capacity and what what is your recommendation to the general masses and population they're not soldiers but now everybody is a warrior against covid yeah you know the science is actually pretty interesting so one of the things that i was investigating personally when 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 i led the expedition to everest was the correlation between your baseline fitness levels and the propensity to develop acute mountain sickness which is that first part of that spectrum right folks who have been to some yeah. altitude would recognize the headache the nausea the upset stomach the vomiting etc and then it leads on to high altitude pulmonary edema which is water on the lungs which is similar to what you experienced and then cerebral edema which is water on the brain that's all a spectrum and now what was interesting anecdotally of course people have always found that it seems like the fitter you are uh, the more prone you are to some of these things but i was really interested in this so what we did was we took all of our subjects and we made them undergo a vo2 max test and a vo2 max test is basically a measurement an objective measurement for the maximal utilization of oxygen in your body now anyone who owns an apple watch or one of these clever fitbit devices you'll see your vo2 max score on your wrist they have some incredible algorithms but the traditional way of doing this is putting a person on a treadmill and making them run pretty damn hard until they collapse and throw up practically which is what always happens when i do this and um and you're measuring the gas coming in gas going out uh, and looking at their performance so what we found was there is an inverse relationship the fitter you are the more likely you are to suffer from acute mountain sickness and there are many theories as to why this might be the case it might just be that because you're naturally fitter you tend to rush up the mountain much quicker you think you're much stronger than everyone else whereas uh, an older more frail person may take their time slowly walk take plenty of rests rest and then allow their body to acclimatize better that might be one system the other may actually just be a physiological trait because of the way you naturally respond to low oxygen or your body is used to low oxygen because of the amount of exercise you do and so the trigger effect with the carbon dioxide level happens at a later point the whole graph is shifted to the right
right and therefore that physiology doesn't kick in so there are many theories around this but i found it fascinating to see that the fitter you are the the, the worse you do now whether that can be extrapolated out to a disease like covid is very hard to say we've seen that people who have chronic diseases overweight hypertension diabetes uh, uh, cardiovascular diseases etc they have done worse with regard to covid than the general younger population but are there unique instances within a controlled demographic group looking at fitness levels and then seeing alterations in the symptomology of the disease i certainly haven't seen a study research uh, out there but you know that would be something interesting to look at but generally for all of us right you asked about uh, effectively what's the prescription the prescription is for us to stay healthy that's what we've seen work at a global level so increase your aerobic capacity that can come through regular walking it doesn't even have to be running by the way i know covid has seen a surge uptake in the number of people that have taken up cycling and running etc but even something as simple as walking 8 to 10000 steps every single day ensuring your diet is healthy it's animal it's it's plant based it's uh, it's it's grain free it's got lots of healthy fats polyunsaturated fatty acids mon- monounsaturated fa- fatty acids your hydrating your body well the really simple things which seem to come to us the hardest that's the best way of ensuring that your immunity is strong you're fighting fit and if you do get the disease then you're giving yourself the best possible chance of of beating it dr marcus i want to shift gears from the himalayas to the other environments mm. i spent about 3 and 1/2 years even in uh, the desert i was resident at bahrain and obviously the temperatures there are far more hotter rather than cooler and yeah. you, know, you have a chapter in your book as well talking about you know the extreme environment of the desert yeah and uh, if you see the lifestyle change in in the desert region the sub saharan and saharan region the people who were the bedouins have now actually settled into cities and their food habits and lifestyle alterations have actually led to a lot of comorbidities and uh, my work over there at saudi aramco setting up saudi aramco john hopkins and cornell medical college cleveland clinic in in the early 2000s showed that how the population in the sahara region in the gulf actually is leading to a lot of uh, explosion of these sort of comorbidities and syndromes in uh, in children young children is it a, a factor of extreme environment or is it a lifestyle factor what do you say about this in your book i think nature versus nurture has been a thread which has played out for many years in the academia and increasingly now the evidence is suggestive that it's more around what you're doing to your body rather than the genetic makeup of who you are roughly 10% of your disease profile is your phenotype right let's just understand Correct. three layers right for our, our our listeners you have your genetic makeup which is basically the instructions which exist inside of your dna then that dna needs to be copied and expressed inside of your body that's called epigenetics and then once that expression happens that then leads to a physical trait that's called your phenotype right so Correct. there are three levels inside of your body the relationship between your phenotype and your genotype is roughly 10% it is the epigenetics which is 
factored by a huge, or rather which is influenced by a huge range of factors, including physical environment, your internal environment, the food you put into your system, the stress levels you put on the body, etc., etc. That can be modulated to impact the phenotype that you see. Right. So I often get folks come to me with their genetic test. It's so easy. And in fact, I did my genome, my whole body genome just last week, and I'm waiting to see the results of that. And people come to me and they say, Doc, you know, I've got these expressions for diabetes and it's showing me I'm going to be at risk or it's showing that I have a gluten sensitivity or lactose intolerance, etc. And I say, look, that's what's hard coded in your genes based on the information that we have with us today right? That's constantly improving. We're finding new SNPs, we're finding new genes, etc. But what you have in your control is the ability to upregulate or downregulate the transcription factors, which will lead to the epigenetic expression of those genes. So the, uh, the amount of stress that you have in your life, the type of food that you put into your system, how much exercise you get on a day-to-day basis, how much sleep you have every night, all of these things ultimately drive the epigenetic So we're seeing this burgeoning of chronic diseases across the developing world, right? One can easily draw a line from Istanbul on the East Coast to Singapore on the Western side. And you can see the huge swell of diabetes, hypertension, metabolic syndrome, PCOS, PCOD, uh, cardiovascular health, etc. And all of that is because we are mistreating the body, right? Genetically, yes, we are, of course, very different to our Caucasian cousins, right? We deal with calories in a very different way because we've grown up in a land where there was a scarcity of calories. And every time the body was given the opportunity to consume a calorie, it saves it, it craves it, it stores it, which is why when we are suddenly living in a calorific abundant world, particularly driven by the white crystal of death, which is sugar, we are storing all of that. We're converting it into glycogen and that's being stored in adipose tissue, in our liver, in our muscle, in the subcutaneous fat around our abdomen. All of these are the worst places for it to be stored. And naturally, we're seeing a rise in insulin resistance uh, and uh, and cardiovascular diseases and atherosclerotic plaque uh, and depression uh, and mood disorders, etc. All of these can be easily fixed with a few lifestyle changes, which I'm going to be talking about in my next book, actually, which is looking oh, at wow. human longevity. Right. Uh, so, you know, these are all things that we can fix very easily. And I touch upon this in At the Human Edge, particularly at the end of the, the book, in the chapter on mitochondria. Uh, so these are all changes that we can do, and it's in our control to make those changes. Yeah. I had uh, an investment in a nutrigenomics venture out of Dubai, yeah. XY Clinic. And we did a lot of work on the molecular and the, at the genetic level, solving certain rare diseases, syndromes, which science could not explain, and then treat it through very non-invasive, simple, you know, high-end nutraceuticals and change of lifestyle. And that really reversed a lot of these PCOS and, and, and a lot of these things that we are seeing in this part of the world, yeah. uh, particularly, uh, particularly in the non-Caucasian population and the Arab population. 
Yeah. You mentioned a little bit on uh, about this in your chapter on mitochondria as well. Yeah. I would love to understand now with COVID and uh, we've also been able to slice the genetic makeup of the COVID uh, virus as well. How do you think this mutation at the at the virus level and some of the mutation that the humans are also going to go through given the extreme environment of climate change, food uh, abundance, calorific uh, intake and these COVID morbidities where do you think this whole makeup is going to end up for the human race are we going to go more sicker or are we going to become more healthier that's a great question look i think one should appreciate the timelines over which both of these changes occurs so for human beings evolution occurs in generations millions and millions of years our body is actually pretty damn good at the recognition of errors in replication of dna and fixing those errors so that it doesn't lead to any significant mutations within our current cells. Of course, we've seen when that goes wrong. Cancer is a fantastic Correct. example of that, right? Tumor generation is a, is a great example. But by and large, human beings are very good at staying to the status quo. Evolution, those external forces, works upon literally millions of generations of our species. So I would not expect there to be any significant change to occur in the next 100, 200 years with regard to our current construct, our phenotype, right? And that includes the assumption that there will be a one to 2% rise in global temperature, that there will be a global shortage of water and therefore dehydration, that we will likely see the first colonization of our species on another planet, therefore a micro gravitational environment or a vacuum of space, etc. None of these changes will happen in the next two to three hundred years. But maybe a time traveler visiting our species in the year, you know, if we are hopefully still around in the year 3,500, 4,000, maybe then they would have started to see some changes around there. Now let's talk about what you're talking about at the viral level. Now a virus, a single-stranded RNA virus like a novel coronavirus has no checks and balances. This is what makes it so dangerous. Every single time there is a antigenic drift, which is where there's a natural tendency for the DNA to uh, shift and, uh, sorry, to drift towards a different type. Or if there's an antigenic shift, which is literally where one base pair gets swapped in for another base pair, there is no way of checking that right there's no mechanism there's no formal mechanism to check that and that's why viral mutations are so dangerous which is why Correct. the influenza virus every single year we have to create a new vaccine and we take a bet you know literally the who looks at six or seven candidates and they think about what's the most likely candidate that's going to cause the biggest challenge to the global system. And then the vaccine production happens. And it's literally a race to get the vaccine out around the world. And it have to happen every 18 months. That's how Correct. that's Correct. how difficult it is. So with COVID, you know, honestly, we don't know. We've actually been quite fortunate. The replication rate of a novel coronavirus has been half as fast as the influenza virus is. And that's really allowed us to reach the stage where we're beginning to see a level of herd immunity pick up in some local populations because of the incidence of asymptomatic spread. And I think the large metros in us, in our country, 
uh, would indicate that particular pattern. And of course, you layer on the fact that you have these large national level vaccination programs. India is doing decently well. We started off really well. We've slipped behind the curve in terms of my honest feedback. But I think we can very quickly rectify that because we largely own the production and manufacturing in this country as well. So we don't have supply chain problems when it comes to international transport, export, etc. So I think, you know, in the next six to 12 months, we can get up that curve very quickly hopefully see by the end of 21, maybe around two to 300 million people vaccinated. By the end of 22, maybe around 500 to 600 million people, maybe more than that vaccinated. And the introduction of new vaccines beyond Covishield and Covaxin, because we will need to have newer vaccines to be added into the population. So, you know, these are things which can be solved for logistically when the scientists are allowed to do their work. I want to push into another topic in your book. Mm. So you talked about being at uh, at above the sea level. You talked briefly on, on another planet. There are certain countries which are planning for city under the city, which is below the sea level. You read about, uh, in your book about the, the, the Mariana Trench, which is the, the most deepest place on the surface of the earth below the sea level. Yeah. Can you please explain what's the future? Are we going to live the Alexandria? What is that? Atlantis. Uh, Atlantis. Or are we going to go to another uh, planet? That's also an option. Yeah. Sea has never been explored. Only 5% of the sea has been explored so far. Yeah. I find it fascinating that we know more about the surface of the moon than we know about our own ocean depths in on our planet. Of course, that's going to change rapidly over the next uh, few decades for a couple of reasons. One is the sort of economic geopolitical interest as the Northern Sea Corridor opens up and you're going to see that become a, a trade route for people to bypass the Suez Canal and, and go around the Cape of Good Hope. There are many minerals and untapped advantages which exist in the Antarctic and the Arctic. And I think we need to be very careful about how we excavate and explore these because we want to maintain the sanctity of these beautiful landscapes for our own geographic diversity and uh, and our planetary health. And there's going to be tourism, you know, quite frankly, and there are a number of companies that are already doing this. And I wrote, I write about this in the chapter on the Mariana Trench, the Challenger Deep, which is part of the Mariana Trench, which is the deepest point on our Earth's surface. Now, there are routine expeditions, research expeditions. And James Cameron, the famous director, whom I write about in the book, uh, people would know him from Titanic and Avatar. Correct. Movie. Uh, he actually built his own submersible and went down to the depths and he collected some rocks and he found life. He collected life samples from down there as well. And many of those life samples will give us indications to understand the origins of life on Earth and possibly on other planets and other bodies, but also new chemicals new antibiotics, new medicines, all of which can be discovered from this biology. So there's a wealth of treasure to be learned about beyond the adventure, beyond the exploration uh, from a science. That's why I said, let the scientists do their work. Let science lead. That's one of my favorite hashtags that I like to keep tweeting about. So, you know, I, I think there's great stuff. But then, you know, one can easily be captivated and we can see what's currently going on on Mars. The fact that NASA recently landed. I'm going to talk about the, the Red Planet chapter, yeah, but since absolutely. you have started, yeah, no, it's, 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 it's all connected, right? That's why I think the book makes such, such a great journey because you can connect the dots and you can see how different extreme environments can make us learn and appreciate and translate to others. And we saw, you know, for, for our listeners right now, you know, we're sitting in March of 2021 and during February and March of this year, 
We've had four, I think it's four expeditions that have reached the, the red planet, uh, the UAE, uh, the Europeans, America, uh, and uh, I think uh, Japan, Japan or China is going to be reaching there very soon right. as well. Yeah. So there's lots going on. It's a very, very busy time for any Martians out there. They're probably wondering what the hell is going on. Earth is sending all of these things. And it was incredible to see, and I'll just talk about the, 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 the Perseverance mission, which was NASA's, the fact that it landed a controlled spacecraft on the planet. It then had the rover unfurl itself. The solar panels came on. It's now driving itself across. And there is a a drone helicopter, which is also yeah. accompanying it. I mean, this is incredible science and engineering. And, you know, it's hard enough. Anyone who's owned a drone and, and you know, we we had one at home a few years ago and tried building one. It's so difficult to build a drone here on Earth with our atmosphere to think about flying one in the rarefied atmosphere of Mars, which is, uh, I mean, it's got a gravity of a six, so it's easier to fly. But the effect of lift is so much more difficult because the density of the atmosphere is so, so thin. It's about three to five percent of what, maybe even less than that, of what the Earth's atmosphere is. So when those rotors have to spin, they, they don't have enough things and they don't there are not enough air molecules in the air to create the lift so it's really really challenging to do so i'm just so excited i'm really excited by the europa mission which should happen uh, over the next few years i i, I think we're going to definitely see um, a permanent presence on the moon before the end of this decade and maybe the early years of 2030 we will definitely see as per current trajectory the first landing of a human being on Mars in the early part of 2030. So there's so much more to be done. I'm so excited. My son, who's five, Aiden is going to be five in, in a couple of weeks' time. I love talking to him and, and telling him about all the potentials that exist in his lifetime. And perhaps in my lifetime, I may be able to go into Earth orbit or maybe even venture to the moon, maybe towards the end. I, I intend to live to 120 based on my longevity plans. Uh, but definitely for him and my daughter, Eva, there's so much that can be done. And I'm just so excited for them. So you talked about your aspiration to live till 120 years. Yeah. And the world is obviously going to see an aging pandemic. China and a couple of countries are already seeing this demographic yeah. misdividends given some of their uh, population outbreak and control of population and birth rate, which means that humans have to be far more productive than their retirement age to the economy and to themselves and ensure that they're fit and fitter in the future beyond the age of 60 or 65 if yeah. they retire. I have not seen any comments on that aspect in your book, but yeah. I would love to talk a little bit about aging and how do, how do you push the human edge to maybe even reverse the process of aging or just stop the process of aging so that we are able to live to 120 years. I practice Katsu, which is a Japanese technique, yeah. which has come out of Japan where uh, these people are living for 100 plus years. And that is a technique that they follow. And it has done um, a world of good for me yeah. as well. And I feel that I could live far longer given the way I'm pushed to my body uh, after my second life in 2013. Mm. What's your message for the people, our geriatric population, to be able to live longer? and healthier and more active. Okay, so lots of lots of threads. So let me unpack that. First of all, 
you're right. I tease the reader. This the book at the human edge is principally focused around human performance and the limits of physiology. So I was really looking at the performance athletes, endurance athletes, and how we can improve our own physiology. Uh, through learning about theirs. However, towards the end of the book, I began to tease the reader into the direction which I feel uh, we as a species will take. And, and as I mentioned already, spoiler alert, this is going to be the subject for my next book, which is around human longevity. Uh, and it's in the chapter on mitochondria, where I talk about some degree of disease reversal. I talk a little bit about the importance of calorific restriction, or as people more popular know as intermittent fasting and time-restricted eating. And we can talk about that here as well now. And some of the other tips and tricks which exist to try and manage the metabolism of our mitochondria, because I fundamentally believe that that little organelle is going to be the secret for unlocking our human uh, our human longevity. So let's talk about aging, uh, couple. Aging is a disease. Okay, let's get some definitions out of the way. Aging is a disease. It is something. So a, a formal definition of a disease is anything that occurs to over fifty percent of the population. So you know, practically, uh, I mean, we all don't age because, of course, some people die at a very young age. But uh, for most of us, we 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 get into those older ages. So it's it's actually a disease. We've just come to accept it as a natural part of our journey. We seem to think that, and we're very bad at this, by the way, in countries like India, because you know we just assume that diabetes will happen, hypertension will happen, I will have a heart attack, these things. But no, that is not the way that it, your journey needs to go. We can all make those small changes in our lives to overcome this. So aging is a disease. Therefore, a disease needs to be managed and it can be reversed and treated. And I believe that this number that exists in our head that, oh, 60 years old or 70 or 80, he's got a good age, you know, he's reached a good age. Well, that's just an arbitrary number because we are associating an 80-year-old with the current 80-year-old, someone who is frail, unable to walk down the road, has chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, has an ejection fraction, which is maybe 12 to 15 percent on 20, 30 medicines. What if I told you that the 80 year old of the future could have the same vitality, the same vigor of a 40 or 45 year old right now? That is the dream. That is the direction that we can achieve. And unfortunately, the reason why we are not doing so today, remember we spoke about genetics, epigenetics and phenotypes. It's because of what's happening at the epigenetic level and the stresses that we are putting on our system, the bad quality of the air, the poor water that we consume, the unnecessary stress that we take, the little exercise, the, the poor food, the too much sugar, the lack of sleep, the, lack, the isolation, the loneliness, the no socialization, the no joy, the no love. All of these things are contributing to making us old and age, all of which is in our control to make changes. Now, there are scientific, technologically-based changes that we will see. These are drugs that will influence the mitochondria, and there are some incredible candidates right now. Rapamycin is one. Metformin, which is commonly prescribed for people Correct. with type 2 diabetes, is another. There are some others as well which are undergoing uh, we what are called the rapologs, undergoing other forms of testing as well. So we're going to see some interesting medicines hit the market over the next 10 to 20 years. We're going to see some interesting interesting toolkits enter the our own prescriptions, whether that's how we prescribe food, right? So Hippocrates in two and a half thousand BC said, let medicine be by food, let food be thy medicine. He knew the secret then. 
we've gotten lost along the way because agriculture has domesticated us and we live in this calorific abundant world and and all of those things but you know the science is very clear most of us and actually when you tap into the ancient wisdoms of of Judaism and Buddhism and Islam and Christianity you see it across every single culture we should be eating in a 10 to 12 hour time window in the day we should only be eating two main meals and one small snack we should principally be eating a plant based diverse diet which is local to where we live which is seasonal to what's available to us right now and which is organic so not treated with chemicals pesticides and hormones we should have healthy fats polyunsaturated and monounsaturated so olive oil and salmon and fatty fish and some types of cheeses and lots of nuts all of these things are very good for us we should be limiting our carbohydrate intake to only complex forms which are limited to certain times of the day so get get rid of sugar and sugar is everywhere it's there in your pasta right. it's there in your juice it's there in every single food and it annoys me so much you see it in places that it shouldn't even be there limit your sugar intake and have only chronic and by the way look i'm experimenting now and i know people can't see this but you can i'm wearing on my arm a continuous glucose monitor device this is an experiment i'm not a diabetic by the way but i want to learn how my body responds to different types of food so in the next two weeks and people can follow me on my social handles i'm doing a bunch of experiments how do i respond to white rice versus red rice versus brown rice versus cauliflower rice right all of these things we each need to know our physiology better so that we can make changes in our own lives so look there are a bunch and i could go on for hours uh, and i'm i'm getting a sense that you can see how that is the case so that's why i've decided to write another text around this and i'll be putting out a whole bunch of different stories on my social handles people can follow me on insta on linkedin on twitter and i'm happy to help them as well through this journey i want us all to be happier healthier and lead a life which is worth living that's my plan yeah all right i need uh, I, to pick up the last chapter <laughs> <laughs> you see yeah. 2013 onwards in my second avatar i seem to have gained certain vibrational energy which is controlling the mind over matter experience that you have written about yeah. i like you to also talk a little bit about that chapter to the audience it's so an interesting experience and journey i have gone through so i i completely empathize your what you have written there and ability to self heal and ability to control a lot of the things through the mind that i have gone through without doing practicing yoga or or meditation or what not i have a i have had a very busy lifestyle yeah. uh, along along my life yeah. but at the same time i see that i am far more younger or i have stopped aging because i have controlled certain emotions and certain things in my mind mm. that uh, at this point in time i don't look uh, my age but at the same time mentally i feel much younger as well i'm terrified of heights uh, it sounds weird given the fact that i fly aeroplanes and i climb mountains but i'm terrified of heights and a few weeks ago for my for my wife's birthday and our anniversary we went to dharamshala up in northern india and after uh-huh. spending a, a few days climbing and trekking she convinced me to go up the side of a mountain with her we went up to 12000 feet odd 10 and a half 12000 feet we put a parachute on our backs and we jumped off the mountain 
I was terrified. And a, a phrase, a quote came to my mind, which reminded me of this moment, which is that we all have two lives. Human beings have two lives. And the second life begins when we realize we have just one. And that right. is living a life without fear, right? And so for many of us, the moment of realization happens at a different point, right? For some people, it's a wake-up call. It's a, it's a near-death experience. It's something that happens to us professionally. It's something that happens to us personally. It could be jumping out of an airplane, whatever it might be. But we have that moment. And once you have that wake-up call, you realize how transformational life can really be. I'm so happy you use the word energy. You know, I've been fascinated with physics literally since I was a boy. One of the first books I ever read, actually, that I have a recollection of was the late Stephen Hawking's book, A Brief History of Time. And he speaks about, you know, string theory, he introduces the idea of string theory and vibrational energies and quantum mechanics, which is a subject that I've studied for a long, long time. And I've often wondered why, as a student of medicine, there is not a single lecture in university. I spent six years studying and probably 20 years thereafter studying that there's not a single lecture which talks about the vibrational frequencies. Because, you know, when you look at the human body, yes, we are a tissue, a system of different organs. Each of those organs is comprised of a tissue. Those tissues are cells. Those cells are atoms. Those atoms are electrons, neutrons, protons, which we now understand are quarks and antiquarks and leptons and bosons. And the further down we go, ultimately, we know at physics that we are the vibrational energy on some unit of string, which exists in maybe 12 dimensions or 17 dimensions or whatever, right? So unless we are able to harness the energy of vibration, how are we truly going to heal our body inside and out? And Correct. I think this is going to be a different journey, which will happen in science over the next 100 or 200 years. I think the, the, the energy of he the healing of energy will be its own practice. And by the way, we're already using it now, right? We already right. use ultrasound. My wife's a physiotherapist, a sports physiotherapist. So she, in her clinic, is already using TENS and ultrasound. We already use lasers. Uh, we're right. already using, uh, you know, all of these things in surgeries. So I think the time will come very soon that we, you know, we can prescribe energy as healing and all of these things which are considered alternative therapies start to become more and more mainstream. So I'm glad you spoke about vibration and energy. But in the chapter that I write about mind over matter, I, I don't talk too much about this vibrational energy side. I actually look at the mind because what I came to the realization in studying all of these incredible adventurers and of course going through a lot of these journeys myself, my, the full, first full marathon that I ran a couple of years ago taught me this as well. In the manifestation of the cellular components of the brain exists the mind. And that mind is fundamental in order to be unlocked for our physical capacity to achieve superhuman feats, right? Any of us has to, has to have that moment. So that's why I decided to dedicate an entire chapter. And it was never going to be part of the original series. It made it in literally at the 11th hour, just as I was, I was submitting my final manuscript. I thought this book is not finished. There's something missing. And so I wrote this very small chapter. And I write about Eliud Kikboshe and his ability to complete the sub two marathon. I, you know, I studied all the various marathon races that have ever been completed since the 1940s. There were literally millions of data points and we found this incredible chart of how people, uh, they are able to accomplish a particular time towards the end of the race and split times. And, you know, like there's so many other stories that I bring into that, but that is the realization that we can train our bodies 
with all of these scientific tools and fancy diets and incredible equipment and visit these amazing vistas. But unless we unlock the power of the mind, which we can do sitting on our chair here right now, you and I, then we will never be able to achieve our human edge. That's a great wrap-up of the book, a great conversation. Before I let you go, I want to know, unravel the future of the human edge inside Dr. Marcus. So where do you think you want to take it from here? What's the future? I'm really excited. In 2020, given the opportunity to serve at the front lines again and practice clinical medicine after a sabbatical of, of almost 11, 12 years since I left the UK, it, 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 it opened up a whole new realm. And then, of course, suffering the disease. And, you know, I had it pretty bad. It took me four months to get back to uh, full health again in my process of recovery. A lot of realizations happened for me. I stepped down from my corporate role uh, in October of, of 2020. Uh, and I'm very excited to now now launch my own venture. Uh, I spend my time focusing on three aspects of human well-being. One is hu- the well-being of individuals. So books are a prime example of that. And you know, I've got this book out at the Human Edge. Another one which I'm working on. I'm working on a documentary series as well. And I do a lot on my social channels. And I encourage all of our listeners to follow and 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 give me feedback and ask me questions because I love to do experiments and help each of us gain our own Human Edge. So that's the well-being of the individual. Uh, the well-being. Of the, of the team, of the unit, I launched a platform. It's a corporate platform. It's a SaaS, mm-hmm. a software as a service, where I work with corporations around the world. And that platform is also called the Human Edge. And I really bring all of these learnings into the corporate environment because leaders have recognized, as I said, the competitive advantage of well-being. And they want their teams to be performing at their highest, to have the highest level of anti-fragility, to have high levels of immunity, to be looking after their stress, to be engaged productive assets. So that's what I do. And I take the biology of your human being and I translate that in a way to deliver these corporate programs, both digitally and through coaching and interventions. So I'm really excited and I'm, I'm kept very busy by that as well. And I'm currently fundraising for that as well and, uh, and looking to grow the platform. And then lastly, I have the work that I do at the global level, which is uh, my academic work with organizations like the World Economic Forum, the Atlantic Council. And that's really looking at the relationship, again, between climate crisis and public health and, and, and advocating and creating content and reports and media and contributing to the global f- efforts around that. Because, you know, when I became a young father, as I'm sure anyone who, who has children on this program would recognize something changes inside of you you realize that your your existence on this planet is beyond the I, it's beyond the me, it's about the we, it's the collective and wanting to leave behind as stewards a healthy, safe, happy planet for the next generation. So that's what gives me purpose in my life, my two young kids. And, and so that's why I dedicate so much time to that aspect. So there's so much going on, but I'm really excited and, and I get a lot of energy out of my work. So none of it seems like work to me. I'm always doing interesting things like having these interesting conversations with great people like you. And uh, I really just appreciate more energy and life to you. Thank you. Thank from you so my much. Side. Thank you. Before you go, my last question, you know, you have some great ideas coming in uh, across and you've also propounded a lot of futuristic as- aspects of health, medicine, aging. Mm. 
And uh, you have been doing at a country level as well at uh, Atlantic Forum and World Economic Forum. I want to understand, you know, how do we democratize these ideas to a much higher level so that the humankind benefit from what you have just spoken in the last 60 minutes? That's a challenge that I'm also very excited to probably see how we could probably even as individuals help in, in propagating it further and as a way forward. Every journey begins with a simple set. And every day I wake up telling myself that uh, I just need to change one life today because I know if I change that one life, it'll it'll move and it'll change someone else and that will slowly snowball and slowly we can change the world through the process. So, um, you know, these are the simplest things that we can do. I often talk about the biohacks, these simple little experiments that I do on myself and I share the learnings with other people. Very, very small things that, uh, that take great inspiration from the work by James Clear, Atomic Habits, by Richard Thaler, Nudge, by Nir Ayal, Hooked, uh, Ariana Huffington and her micro steps. So many different versions of this exist. And what I try to do is just link it back to the biology. And I think it's so easy for all of us because, you know, it's it's we, the reality, couple, the reality that is exists around us is a construct of the stories that we tell ourselves. And the minute we recognize that we are the author and the protagonist of our own journey in life, we unlock the ability to start telling ourselves new stories and opening up new routes for ourselves. So let's all begin that journey today. Let's decide to write a new page in the chapter of our own book and, and make it one focused on health, well-being and happiness. So I am seeing this as a human edge biopic. <laughs> It's really great speaking to you. I learned a lot personally, and I'm sure our audience would also have heard and learned a lot of what's there in your book. And thank you. I really appreciate spending the time today and talking to us. Thank you so much and more energy to you and God bless. And I wish you all the best for your next book. And I'm hoping that we will be able to talk more at length in our podcast show in the future as well. Absolutely. Thanks so much, uh, Marcus. Thank you for having me. Take care, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.